evening, we are going to pick up right where we left off last week. Um, we were right in the middle of talking through the history of English versions of the Bible. And if you haven't been with us, there's several of you who haven't, so I want to just kind of give you a synopsis of what we've been talking about over the last several weeks. Um, we talked about how uh, the Bible uh, came to us in uh, its English form. And so now uh, we're getting through uh, various translations that we've had uh, through the years. And uh, once we get through those versions of the Bible, we're going to go back and talk about um, how it is that it came to be that we have the 66 books in the Bible that we have. Uh, we're going to answer those questions because uh, that's raised uh, quite often. Um, particularly as you talk with those who are skeptical about the Scriptures. Um, but it's important for us to know. Um, I taught chapel at UCS this morning, and uh, what I told them over and over is we need to know what we know or what we believe and why we believe it. Um, so it's important that we be able to um, defend the authenticity, the sufficiency, and the authority of the Bible. Part of understanding that is knowing about the various translations um, how we got them, why we have them, and, uh, and why there's 66 books of the Bible and why others aren't a part of it and everything else. So we're going to get through these and then we'll go back um, uh, historically and talk through some of that. So where we left off last week was I was just beginning to talk about the King James Version of the Bible. Um, but before I talk about the King James uh, specifically, uh, if you turn to the sheet where all of the various uh, definitions are that I gave you in that little packet, uh, the very top one is autograph. Jump down to the bottom, uh, the bottom definition there, textus receptus. Textus receptus. This is uh, what refers most often to... Um, Erasmus's Greek text of 1535. So Erasmus had a Greek text of the entire Bible that was, uh, was compiled. Um, it's called the Textus Receptus. Um, the King James Version of the Bible, or also known as the Authorized Version, is based upon Erasmus's Greek text, the Textus Receptus. Now, it is... Among certain evangelicals, it is criticized because its reliance was upon um, later Greek manuscripts. Earlier manuscripts have since been found and have been used to compile uh, a more thorough uh, text from uh, it, particularly in the, the Greek writings, but also uh, several of the Hebrew writings. So uh, what, what ends up happening is we, we kind of have two lines of interpretation. One is the textus receptus, which relies upon a little bit younger uh, copies. But over the years, older copies had been found, and as they were compared and studied through the, um, as we talked about before, through the discipline of textual criticism, they came to the conclusion that those were more accurate. And we're going to talk about, um, talk about that in just a little bit. Um, so just because something's older 
doesn't mean that in itself doesn't mean that it's more correct. Uh, that in itself doesn't mean that that makes it more accurate. But when you take uh, when you take the majority of everything that has been found and you start to piece it together, and everything points to the eclectic Greek text as being uh, most reliable, we have to draw those conclusions in the end. So that has caused uh, no. Um, uh, no loss of debate within the Christian church. Um, there are those who are very adamant about us using the King James Version only, uh, but there are others uh, such as us who would say um, the King James Version is not the best version, English version of the Bible. In fact, would even go as far as saying that it is relying upon a, a version of the Greek text that is inferior to others that we have. So we'll talk about that a little bit uh, more. But wanted to, to just draw your attention to that as we think about that line of translation. Think, keep those two things in mind. There's one line, textus receptus. There's another line, eclectic Greek text. And that's important as you begin to talk about these English translations that come up after the King James Version in 16. 11. So, let's talk about the King James Version of the Bible because it is very important in the history of uh, English translations. And particularly, um, particularly the, the, the thing that I want to, um, to give you is the historical foundation of the King James Version of the Bible and as we uh, as we work that out to see that even those who came uh, to work on the King James Version of the Bible did not hold a position of it being the inspired English version of the Bible, as many today would uh, conclude. Um, and we talked about that briefly last week, but I want to um, to work that out a little bit more now. Up front, I want to say that we have no uh, no problem with. Um, the King James Version whatsoever. It is, uh, it has for many, many years uh, been uh, part of the church and has been what uh, the church in the English-speaking world has predominantly used since the 1600s. Um, nevertheless, uh, when something better, we have something better, we want to move to that. Um, Last year, we celebrated the 500-year uh, anniversary of the King James Version of the Bible, and as we should have. It was a, a great uh, movement forward in God's people having his word. Um, so the King James Version of the Bible came about because all of the various um, previous translations that were available um, were not able to satisfy all of the different uh, divisions within the English-speaking church at the time. So in 1604, King James I authorized a new translation of the Bible to be used in all of England. So from 1604 to 1611, um, the translation committee uh, convened and worked out all of the, their interpretations throughout the text, uh, using the Textus Receptus, the, um, the Hebrew and, and Greek of the Bible, um, and they came to their translation. But they needed to generate thousands of copies right away. So what ended up happening, when they went to print, uh, two different publishers were used, and therefore two different Bibles were produced. <laughs> 
So right up front, we see there's a difficulty when dealing with the King James Version of the Bible. Let me give you some example. Um, the, there's two, I might have mentioned this last week, there's two versions, and they're, they're simply named the He edition and the She edition because of a verse uh, that was messed up in Ruth uh, 3.15. Um, the He edition reads, He, Boaz, went into the city. The she edition reads, she, Ruth, went into the city. So, Boaz or Ruth, who is it? It's the he or she versions of the King, the King James. The two editions had over 200 differences between them. And so, very quickly, you can see there's going to be some, uh, some difficulties there. Um, another example. The he edition says, then cometh Judas, in Matthew 26, 36, instead of, then cometh Judas. Jesus. There's quite a difference between Judas and Jesus. <laughs> uh, the she edition repeats 20 words in Exodus 14.10. Even from the start, it was difficult for them, as you can see, to determine which is the actual King James version of the Bible. Um, now, most people don't know this, but... and. If you don't know what this is, we're going to talk about it later, so I'll explain it later. But the original 1611 King James Version of the Bible included the Apocrypha. Most people don't realize that. Um, but it, it, uh, it, had, it had in it those books that we would disregard and say are not Scripture. And we'll talk about the Apocrypha uh, later if you're not sure what that is. Um, but it... Uh, it included the Apocrypha early on and eventually was discarded. Now, the goal of the translators who worked on the King James Version of the Greek and Hebrew was to get it to a place where it could be read by the ordinary person who knew how to read in that day and time, just like any of our translations do today. Um, but they understood the danger in doing what they're doing. Let me read a quote from the translation committee that worked on the King James Bible. They wrote, For was anything ever undertaken with a touch of newness or improvement about it that didn't run into storms of argument or opposition? The king was well aware that whoever attempts anything for the public, especially if it has to do with religion or with making the word of God accessible and understandable, sets himself up to be frowned upon by every evil eye and casts himself headlong on a row of pikes to be stabbed by every sharp tongue. For meddling in any way with the people's religion is meddling with their customs, with their inalienable rights. And although they may be dissatisfied with what they have, they cannot bear to have it altered. So they knew up front that what they were doing was very dangerous. And... Certainly they knew that because historically, as we looked at last week, many people who began translating the scriptures early on were martyred for doing so. Um, we, we talked about uh, Wycliffe and, and William Tyndale and uh, their death because of their translation work of the Bible. Um, now, very quickly, you begin to see in, uh, in the King James Version alone... Um, Language changes over time, and therefore the King James Version changed over time. Those who hold a position of King James Version only, um, a lot of times they either don't recognize this, don't acknowledge it, um, 
one of those two, typically. But uh, there are many revisions of the King James Version, 1629, 1638, 1729, 1762. And the King James Version that is most common today is 1769, also known as the Oxford Standard Edition. Um, Why? Well, simply because language changes. The very same reason we have other versions today. Language changes. Um, But as I said early on, since the King James Version, other later manuscripts have been uh, been discovered, have been gone through textual criticism, and as a result, uh, we have been able to uh, come to what we believe to be a more fuller picture of what the the true manuscripts, um, uh, what they had to say. Um, so as a result of that, and here's where you're reading through your translation, if it's not the King James, where some of these nuances are going to come out, um, particularly in light of the, as we said before, the Textus Receptus, and the eclectic Greek text. So let's let's do an example here. If you have your Bible, go to uh, to Mark chapter sixteen. Mark chapter sixteen. And someone read the note to me that is in your Bible between verses 8 and 9. Okay. Some of the earliest manuscripts don't include the remainder of what is written in Mark chapter 16. Now, we don't have time tonight to go into all the nuances of the whys and everything else. I will tell you, I don't think... Verses 9 through 20 are a part of the inspired uh, text. Um, Which is the very reason why this note is put in here. Most conservative evangelicals today do not believe that verses 9 through 20 are a part of the inspired text. But they were in some later editions um, of the uh, manuscripts and therefore they are there for us to read. Um, So... Take it or leave it, but that's why we have those notes in there because they point to the reality that there is um, there is a discrepancy there among textual critics. Another example: go to uh, Acts chapter eight. Uh, someone read for me verse thirty-seven. Trick question. (laughs) Notice it goes from verse 36 to verse 38. Verse 37 is another one that is is questionable. Again, it comes back to which, which manuscripts are we using? Now, most of your Bibles probably have a footnote, I'm assuming. And it tells you that there are manuscripts that do have this verse in there, therefore it's there. Why, why does it show up as a n- numbered verse in our Bibles, and why didn't they change the verse numbers? Well, it's based upon those early translations, particularly the King James Version. Now, re- remember, chapter numbers, verse numbers, those are not part of the inspired text. 
but we want to historically be able to refer to the same parts of the Bible so the numbers stay the same, so they just pull it out and remove that number. But again, this is another place where it's debated. So if you remember last week, if you were here, I talked about how we can be certain of our English translation containing um, that we're certain of about 97 to 98% of it being um, as the original manuscripts of the scriptures. Uh, But there are these various nuances that we need to take note of um, to understand the study that's been done behind them uh, to answer uh, questions regarding those. So um, let me give you a little bit more, and then I'll take any questions you might have about some of that. Um, One of the other issues with the King James Version is... um, the reason we have English translation is because most of us don't know Hebrew and Greek. Uh, but if you read the King James Version, you also need to know another language, which is um, the 1611 version is in a, uh, a form of English that most of us would not understand at all. Um, you probably can't even read the letters, let alone uh, make heads or tails of the words. But on top of that, if you've ever read the King James Version, you know you spend a lot of your time trying to figure out, what do these words even mean? Why are these words together as they are? Let me give you a few examples. Um, Exodus 19.18 in King James Version says, And Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke. That sounds to me like the mountain was taking a smoking break. Psalm 5.6, Thou shalt destroy them that speak leasing. Um... James 2, 3, and ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing. It's a very different meaning today. James 5, 11, the Lord is very pitiful. Again, a very different meaning. So there are many of these nuances. Um, and again, I want, I want to emphasize the King James Version was a very good translation in the early 1600s because it was written in the English of the early 1600s. But today, most of us would have a problem reading even a paragraph from the 1611 version of the Bible. Um, so uh, we, need to, uh, we need to understand that. And for the King James only advocate, they're not being su- consistent themselves because... Uh, they're not talking about the King James Version. They're talking about a translation that came later. So um, if you ever get involved in those conversations, and they're out there, I think they they seem to me to be less and less, but they are still there. So um, it's good to study up on that. If you're interested, there's been some good books written about it if you want to do more study there. Any questions about that before we move on? Yes, sir. We're going to get there. That's where we're headed right now. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. Uh, he asked about, it's a good question, after, uh, at which point, as they had the various versions of the King James Version, did the Apocrypha come out? It was only in the 1611 version. After 1611 it came out. It was no longer a part of it. Yes, if we have time. Yes. Okay. Um, so if you look on uh, your list of all the dates and all the various translations, um, go to 1885. 
1885, we see the English Revised Version. This is the first version of the Bible to use the practice of the, the discipline of what we call textual criticism. Now, again, remember last week we talked about that. That is the study of the, uh, the autographs, or the, excuse me, the manuscripts that we, that we have um, of the Bible. So, it are, it, it's, it's a group of people who are scholars um, who work in the original languages and they can do the work of determining uh, what goes where and how it all fits together. That's textual criticism. This was the first version of the scriptures to use that practice. Uh, 1901, the American Standard Version was basically an American revision of the English Revised Version. Um, <coughs> Then you see a big gap, about 50 years until the Revised Standard Version came about. Um, the goal of the RSV, and it's still a great translation, the goal of the RSV was to capture the best of modern scholarship, so taking all that they've learned through the textual criticism, um, that regard, it's all regarding the meaning of the scriptures, what are the best, um, what are the best manuscripts to work from, and everything else. Um, to express that meaning in English in a way that in public and private worship that the reader would not have the difficulty of working through language that um, was outdated. Um, it's the same qualities that helped the King James Version to, uh, to gain the prominence that it did. Um, and so they applied those same principles that also used the Textus Receptus. Now, uh, 1966 and 1970, you see two uh, English translations of the Roman Catholic Bible, the Jerusalem Bible and the New American Bible. Both of them include the apocryphal text. Now, what's interesting here is this is the first time in their history the Roman Catholic Church allowed any translation to be done from the Greek and Hebrew text. Um, what? What were they using before then? Latin. They used the Latin Vulgate to translate everything that they had into various languages. So they weren't even depending upon the original text. They were depending upon uh, the Latin Vulgate, which uh, we talked about, uh, translated by Jerome, um, was not even a great translation. Um, 1971, and here's where uh, Drew just asked, why the explosion? Well, in the 70s, you're talking, uh, we're, you know, 50s, 60s, the church starts uh, Protestantism, particularly in America, you start to see all sorts of divides. You see uh, the rise of the social gospel and liberalism. Um, you see, uh, you know, the, um, the German critics are doing a lot of work to try and discount the Bible and Jesus' miracles and everything that he was and did. Um, so as a result, you start to see various uh, ways of translating the scriptures to try and line up with these various forms of scholarship that were happening at the time. Um, most of it was a big push from the liberals. Uh, you, you see this in major denominations, too. Um, the Southern Baptist Convention was going through this whole shift uh, and various others. Some of them went liberal and stayed liberal. Others uh, became more conservative through it all. Uh, but you begin to see the pace rapidly increasing from here. Uh, then when you get into uh, the 80s and 90s, 
uh, and the last decade will explain why those uh, started. You started to see a lot there as well. Um, the New American Standard Bible, 1971. Many people still use that today. It is a good translation of the Bible. Uh, it claimed to be a revision of the uh, the um, American Standard Version of 1901, but it really was a new translation altogether. What, what's unique about the New American Standard? I might have mentioned this last week. How is it written? Does anyone have a New American Standard here tonight? Anyone bring NASB? It is? Okay, how are, the, how are the verse lines written? Are they in paragraph form? Oh, okay. Okay, yeah. Um, the, the translation's the same, but how they, how they flow together. If you have a genuine New American Standard Bible, every verse is on a different line. It's not written... Is yours, is yours like that? Yeah, okay. Instead of... Most of your other versions, probably whatever you have tonight, you see paragraphs, you see paragraph breaks, you see all of these things. When you go to the book of Psalms, you see uh, the poems are written uh, in a form that you would see poetry in. Uh, One line has five words, and the next maybe has two, and the next has four. What you see in the New American Standard is every verse of the Bible has its own line. As a result, it's been criticized as being a very uh, wooden translation that it's very, uh, the, the goal of the translators of the New American Standard Bible was uh, to provide something that was as close to literal as possible. And if you look at that, that chart you have of the, uh, the various translations and where they, where they land on that spectrum, you see that the New American Standard version of the Bible is way over there on the, uh, on the left side. I don't think, I didn't give that to you guys in the back there, sorry. Um, so the goal was word for word, nowhere, uh, not really concerned with thought for thought. And so as a result, you get sort of a kind of a clunky uh, line by line version. It's good for study. It really is. I use it in my, uh, one of the versions I use in my weekly study. Um, but... If you want a full-orbed picture of what's going on in the Scriptures, you should couple the New American Standard with another version. So anyway, that came in 1971. At the same time, the Living Bible came uh, with it. Now, the Living Bible is it was really the first of the American paraphrase Bibles. And we talked briefly about this last week. A paraphrase is someone or a group of people reading the English text and then rewriting the verses in a way that um, they're simply uh, trying to explain the verse in a different way. So please don't use paraphrased Bibles for Bible study. It's someone's opinion of what that verse is trying to tell you. So uh, the Living Bible uh, was the first of the paraphrases. The only thing I would ever use a paraphrase for is uh, in the same way I would use a commentary. Sometimes they're good, sometimes they're bad, take it or leave it. But I recognize as I read it, this is not Scripture. It's someone's idea of what this means. They're not even dealing with the original languages. It's straight from the English. 1976, the Good News Bible, also known as Today's English Version. Um, They tried to get the express meaning in conversational English. So it's kind of written in uh, what would have been uh, 
not proper English, not academic English, but however you and I would talk to one another um, in a regular uh, conversation, not in the South, but maybe a more neutral place in the country. Um, <laughs> so the, uh, the conversational language was used in writing uh, that uh, version. 1978, the New International Version, which now uh, is uh, sold more than any other version of the Bible in the United States, and it really has been that way since the, the 80s. Um, they tried to find the middle ground between word-for-word translation, like the New American Standard, and thought-for-thought translation. What were the writers thinking as they were writing, as they were going along? So they tried to find the middle ground. They wanted, they wanted to be, uh, be true and fair to what, uh, what they're seeing in the Greek and Hebrew, but they wanted to try and uh, capture um, the, uh, I guess the, the, the thought patterns that were going into the arguments that the biblical writers were making. So they sought to find the middle ground. If you look on that chart, that sliding scale, I think Steve mentioned it last week. Uh, we as elders would not recommend going any further on that chart than the New International Version towards thought for thought. We want to err on the side of word for word, not thought for thought. Word for word is going to the original text and saying, here's what it says in a translated form. The other side is you'll see on the very end are paraphrases to where here's what I think this means or what you hear in a lot of Bible studies. Here's what it means to me. Um, so we, we want to get away from that. So the New International Version is probably the furthest we would slide on that scale. Um, 1982, New King James Version of the Bible. And this is why uh, this is important. Remember those two, those two tracks of the Greek manuscripts, Textus, Receptus, and Eclectic Greek texts. The New King James was the first version and the only version since the King James to use the Textus Receptus in its translations. All the others went over to the Eclectic Greek text. So um, they, they sought to update the language of the King James Version simply using the same manuscripts that were used um, What's funny is if you hear someone uh, preaching from a New King James Version of the Bible, uh, they spend a lot of time saying, what this word really means is whatever. And whatever that word is, they say, if you have another version that used the eclectic text, then typically it's already done for you. So um, the New King James, again, is a great version of the Bible. Um, but you're, you, have some, you have some work to do in word studies and all of those things that we've talked about previously. So um, something to keep in mind there. 1987, New Century Version. This was purely thought for thought. Um, and this is when you start to see people taking a lot of liberty with how the Bible is translated. All of these, um, uh, for a while, became... Uh, simply translation committees working from the English text to come up with a better way to uh, explain the Bible uh, so that Americans could understand it. Uh, new, uh, the New Century Version um, skipped to 1995, the Contemporary English Version, the New International Reader's Version, New Living Translation. All of these are thought for thought. 
all of them sought to simply be a way to uh, to be able to communicate the text in a way that is easy to read. The problem is that they um, oftentimes miss the meaning of the actual text. Um, we skipped the New Revised Standard Version of 1989. It was simply a revision of the RSV. It was as their their motto in translation was as literal as possible, as free as necessary. <laughs> so um, that kind of uh, leaves a lot to be desired. Um, 1998, we see the New English Translation. What's interesting about this is it's only, the New English Translation, the NET, is only published electronically, and it is under constant revision. So as there's new discovery or as those who work on it uh, understand more about the original text and everything else, uh, their revisions are made. So you can go online today. It's free. You can go and look at the, the um, New English translation um, and see uh, the progress that's been made. It's not bad. Um, I don't use it very often, but um, there are some nuances in there to be careful about. But it's, it's, not, uh, it's not a terrible version to use. 2001, um, evangelicals went crazy because the, the New International Version uh, decided they wanted to update to today's New International Version. This was a revision of the NIV, uh, but what they sought to do was to introduce gender neutrality to the Bible. So anywhere where there's reference to man or men, when they determined that what the biblical writer really meant was men and women or people, um, they went ahead and made those changes. Um, so I don't know their motives. <laughs> I, I'm not going to assume their motives are uh, of the sort of the feminist sort, but uh, that certainly was a heavy accusation leveled against them. That you're taking out all that the Scripture has put in, uh, all that God has put into His Word to refer to these things, which include principles like headship and authority within the home and the church and all these things. When you start to dissolve those ideas of gender, um, then you can get more toward uh, ideas that you see in more uh, liberal uh, churches like uh, ordination of female pastors and those sorts of things. Um, and I can only say this because I know uh, one of my professors was on the NIV um, translation committee, and that was very much a part of his agenda, was to see that, um, uh, that they can get women ordained to the pastorate and that um, the idea of male headship in the home and those sorts of things was not taught in the church. So that was part of why he wanted to see that. So um, anyhow, that, uh, that caused a lot of uh, stir then. Um, 2001, you also, um, you also see the publication of the English Standard Version. This is what we use here at Ephesus Church. This is what all of your elders use. Um, this is what we believe to be the best translation, English translation of the Bible. Um, it is word for word, predominantly. It, uh, it is based um, mostly on uh, the same translation techniques that were used for the RSV, the Revised Standard Version of 1952. Um, 
the translators had this in mind. They want to be as literal as possible. They want to maintain the beauty and the dignity of expression in the Bible. They're pursuing literary excellence. They look at the Bible and say that this is a a literary masterpiece from start to finish. And we don't want to dissolve that. We want to see the beauty of the scriptures as they're written. So the poetry of the Psalms and the uh, kind of the the witty, uh, sometimes snarkiness of the Proverbs, want that to come out. Um, the uh, the wisdom uh, that is drawn from things like uh, Job and the the angst that you see uh, there, all of these things they 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 read into them and understand the uh, the beauty of literary form, and they want that to come out as uh, they translate. So, um, maintaining a a posture of word for word literal translation but not straying away from trying to maintain the beauty that's being communicated, which is very, very difficult when you're going from one language to the next. There's, it's impossible to do uh, Psalm 119 in the form that Psalm 119 is in the Hebrew because it's an acrostic poem. Well, we don't use the same letters as the Hebrew alphabet, so we can't get the acrostic poem idea as we read it in English. Nevertheless, they try to stay as close to that as they can and do several things throughout the text to help us see that. Um, Now, well, 2002 Message Bible, paraphrase Eugene Peterson. I actually was in a seminar when Eugene Peterson was talking, and he said, um, I hate the fact that they put my name on it and said that uh, I wrote the Bible. Um, I didn't. I was just... uh, Trying to, I worked through the Bible myself and explained each verse in my own writing for myself to do. And um, Nav Press asked me if they could publish it, and they did. And then it became this. Now people carry the message to church. That was never Eugene Peterson's intention. Um, so, nevertheless, it's uh, it's not something uh, to use. Um, 2004, the Holman Christian Standard Bible came out. It is word for word, um, unless for clarity's sake they needed to um, to make a uh, make a nuance uh, change there, and so they put the literal sense in the footnote. So what, what ends up happening, 80s, 90s, and the last decade of 2000s, um, a, a lot of publishing companies start to publish their own version of the Bible. Why? Well, when, uh, when someone writes a book, and they go to publish the book, and, some, and they're referencing the Bible in their book, Whoever holds the rights for that Bible translation, they have to pay them money to use the rights for that translation. So there are a lot of good English translations, uh, but really there's far too many and there's no reason for any more. And all of it is uh, because of this thing between various publishers. So Crossway has the rights to the ESV. Uh, Nav Press has the rights to one. And um, uh, Holman Christian Standard Bible is Broadman and Holman. I call it HCSB. It's the Hardcore Southern Baptist Bible. That's a, it's a, a, uh, Broadman and Holman is owned by the Southern Baptist Convention. That's their publisher. So, um, so all of these publishers have their own versions, so they don't have to pay rights to other publishers to use the text within their, their books. And So that's where some of that, that adds to what you were asking about, Drew. Russ. Yeah, they've talked about phasing out the NIV. Now, 
there's a lot of discussion about it because people are, again, the kind of the debates rising again, but they really have a desire to move to TNIV and phase out the NIV altogether, which is crazy because they sell more of that than anything else. But whatever. <laughs> they have an agenda. Any questions about any of this that I didn't, didn't cover? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, it all depends. Some yes and some no. Generally, the thought-for-thought thought translations are um, are from an English text or um, maybe from another language altogether. Um, every now and then there were some that would use the original, but um, they're more concerned with what's the idea behind the passage. Uh, so they would just turn to whatever language and try and make it sound. But others that are... All of the translations that are leaning for word-for-word, literal translation, they're all going back to the Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic to, to do the translations. Any other questions on those things? All right, so now when you go to the bookstore and you walk down the Bible aisle and you are bombarded with 50 translations in their shiny boxes and their nice leather covers with a, a cross that has flowers on it, you can look at it and make a determination of what should I get? What do I need? Uh, people ask me all the time, what about, what's the best study Bible? I truly believe, not, because I, not just because I use it, but I wouldn't use it if I didn't think it, I think the ESV study Bible is by far the best study Bible that you can get. Um, there were over a hundred scholars that worked on the English Standard Version. Almost every verse in the Bible is noted. There are essays, charts, everything else. Now you have to um, you have to get a backpack to carry it around because it's so large. But it is um, is that what you have there? Yeah. Um, but I think um, what you get in the ESV Study Bible is fantastic. Yes. It is. No, we just love it. <laughs> and they have, um, there are various uh, various things that come uh, that they've, they've produced. Um, they have a student study Bible. They've taken out some of the essays and reduced the size and all of that sort of stuff. But there are various forms of that. Yes, sir. Yeah, they do. Yes. Um, now, you will see various versions that have different study Bibles within that version. For example, the New King James Version. There's a New King James Version Reformation Study Bible. There's a New King James Version MacArthur Study Bible. There's an, you know, on down that road. Um, you see that with the NIV as well. Um, so even within that, there are various nuances that you want to be careful of. Our recommendation, ESV Study Bible, number one. Um, Reformation Study Bible is excellent. Um, if you're interested in the Geneva Bible, the Geneva Study Bible is really good and helpful. Um, Mac- what's that? And it is really cool looking, yes. Leather bound, I like gold leaf on the end. It's really neat. Um, yeah, it is big. <laughs> A pulpit Bible? Yeah, it's pretty close. <laughs> Um, MacArthur Study Bible um, is good. There's certainly uh, notes in there I'd love to take out, but um, 
you know, I think probably 90% of it we agree with and think it's pretty decent. So, yes, sir. <laughs> yes. Uh, no, we don't. <laughs> yes. Here's here's the thing. When we uh, next week, we're going to jump right into. Well, actually, next is next week the ninth. Okay, the week after that. I'll explain why. I'm getting ahead of myself here. Uh, we're going to talk through one week. We're going to spend. How do we know that we have the right books in the Old Testament? The Apocrypha is a part of that. And then the next week we'll talk about how do we know we have the right books in the New Testament? How did they all come to be? How do we get them put together into the Bible that we have? So we'll deal with the Apocrypha when we deal with the the Old Testament scriptures. Next week, please make every effort to be here. Uh, Pastor Hugh Thompson from Garden City Primitive Baptist Church will be here live and in person. Um, He went uh, recently to Israel and uh, he's going to do a presentation to tell us all about that trip. He has plenty of pictures, a lot of neat stories. Um, he told me about it right after he got home, and I've been really excited for him to come and share with everybody about that. So uh, he had a great, a great trip. He's a great brother. We love him very much and very excited to have him come share. So please try to make every effort to be here uh, next week for that, and we'll pick up the following week with our study. Um, I don't know if I mentioned last week, after we get through that, after we get through talking about the Bible itself and the canonization of Scripture and everything else, we're going to sort of, we're just going to move right into studying through the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. Uh, we've not done that since I've been here over the last five years, and it's, uh, it's time. So uh, if you've ever wondered what exactly do we believe about various things, um, we're going to go through all 32 chapters it's going to take some time, so um, make sure that uh, if that you get a copy, I'll have some copies of the confession for you, and we'll work as slowly as we need to through that. But that's where we're we're headed over the long term.